This is the Namine Solar Light Company podcast, Solutions for Climate Revolution. My name is Francesca and I am my guest today, here to celebrate World Environmental Day with some scary facts, but some seriously cool solutions to our problems. Us. A reduction in greenhouse gas emissions has been one of the silver linings to the COVID-19 pandemic. For the first time since I was 15, when I started my eco-warrior mission, for the first time in 15 years, I felt ever so slightly alleviated from the increasing pressure our waste products exert on our precious ecosystems. And I am sure I am not the only one. However, I am recording this episode to share three things I have learnt that shook me out of my false sense of security and back to the harshness of our collective existence. Now this all sounds very doom and gloom, but my mission now, here, is to flip this perspective. Absolutely, our circumstances at present can feel hopeless. The energy balance within our atmosphere, the thin blue line, is supposed to protect and nourish us. But instead, despite our technological advancements, we are all contributing towards creating a more hostile environment for ourselves. We have almost destroyed our home. So I am by no means wanting to downplay the severity of our current biodiversity and climate emergency. What I wish to emphasize and what I hope this episode will inspire is understanding for a vast majority of us to understand that we have all the solutions to undo and repair the damage. What is missing is mass collaborative action. We need all of us to adopt as many of these known solutions as possible. Mass adoption of small choices that I outline in detail in the Solutions for Climate Revolution guide means we will break up the climate challenge into smaller, more manageable chunks. We can then add to our bucket list reversing climate change and inequality. And we can all say, I am part of the solution, not the pollution. Sounds great, right? And what a time for celebration. Why I specifically say harshness of our collective existence without wanting to sound alarmist is because I believe these are three hugely significant issues that absolutely warrant very loudly sounding the alarm. So to go full circle, move past the fear and scariness of our horrific reality, jumping straight to feeling enabled, energized and capable of making the small changes, I firstly want to address an observation of others I keep hearing. How come, with almost the entire world under lockdown, have our global emissions not come down more? The answer will give context to the solution to the three party pooper nuggets of info I feel very compared to share. To share. The answer to this question, why have global emissions not reduced more? we need to examine and understand the ranking of industry sectors by their greenhouse gas emissions. In other words, the leaderboard table showing which sector is winning when it comes to most negatively impacting our health with greenhouse gas is and toxic chemicals. We can then compare our consumption under the restraints imposed upon us by the pandemic. So, in order, 
the number one most significant contributor to human-induced global warming is our global energy sector. No industry has more substantial impact on the world than the oil and gas industry. These fossil fuels provide us with arguably some of the most valuable commodities. Oil provides fuel for cars, lorries, planes, ships. The byproduct from oil refining find application in plastic production, lubricants, beauty products, tarmac for roads. Almost all pesticides and fertilizers used in agriculture across the world are made from oil or a byproduct of oil. Natural gas has been overtaking coal to burn to provide cheaper electricity, and it is also used in our district heating networks for our central heating and hot water and for cooking on a gas stove. Natural gas powers many of the world's industries from glass and steel manufacturing, metal smelters, to also producing plastics, fertilizers, paints, color dyes, polymers, and textiles. Our lives, what we touch, taste, smell, see, and hear are directly connected to oil and gas. We are integrated within this industry. We rely upon it and the industry relies upon us to create the demand that drives the need for more and more supply. However, we only ever really see and hear about the last of the three phases to this industry, the stage we are part of, the final element called downstream, where the refining and production happen to create the products we exchange for our money. When we think about the carbon footprint, we are, think about, we are thinking about the emissions that have resulted from downstream. We think about the emissions from running our car, heating our home, charging our laptops and phones. It's the carbon emissions that result directly from our action or operation within our environment. However, thinking in terms of our carbon footprint is the tip of the iceberg. Thinking in terms of embodied carbon takes the entire iceberg into account. We can think about the difference between carbon footprint and embodied carbon using a car for an example. When we drive, we can talk about our carbon footprint, the emissions that come out of the exhaust that result from the operation of the car from the combustion of the fuel. The embodied carbon of the car is the carbon footprint, the emissions from manufacturing the car, the energy needed to power the factory that built the car, the energy needed to power the manufacture of building all the car parts, the energy needed to power making the materials, the energy needed to find the materials, and the energy needed to build the car manufacturing factory. The embodied carbon of all of our materials our resources, the things we buy, is the depth of the level of thinking we need to reverse global warming. Don't worry, it's a lot easier than it sounds. Going back to why oil and gas, going back to why the oil and gas industry is the most significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, it is because it is not just us creating emissions from driving, powering our homes, using the end products of the oil and gas industry. It is the two steps before downstream, 
the embodied carbon of the oil and gas industry. The two steps before downstream. The first step is upstream, the exploration, the search for new oil and gas reserves and the production, getting those oil and gas reserves out of the ground. Upstream uses a lot of energy, thinking about the embodied carbon of all those things that need to happen to enable searching for oil and gas. The second element is called midstream, the transportation of the raw materials dug out of the ground via ships, pipelines, rail or lorries to the factories and refineries in the downstream phase where the products we buy get made. I believe between 30 to 40% of all the total fossil fuels dug up are used to power the energy sector in upstream, midstream and downstream, for example. So it's not just us using fossil fuel energy that causes the energy sector to be the top of the emissions list. It is also due to the emissions from the energy the energy sector requires to run. This is an excellent place to mention Planet of the Humans, a recent documentary that talks about the embodied carbon of, renewable, of the renewable energy sector. Yes, solar panels have a high embodied carbon. Wind turbines, hydroelectric plants and batteries are also energy and resource intensive to manufacture. And biofuel is undoubtedly not an eco-friendly alternative to fossil fuels when trees from natural forests ecosystems are used to power the biomass plants. But what I believe Planet of the Humans fails to address is the impact that clean energy generated will have on our health and the comparatively minimal lack of waste products renewables have at the end of life. Also, unlike the fossil fuel industry, the renewable energy sector is still a baby. Research and innovation into reducing the negative impacts of renewables are constant. I know this firsthand because I specifically chose to focus my master's research at Imperial on enhancing the efficiency of thin film solar cells that use less material and are therefore have a smaller embodied carbon. Floating wind turbines are another prime example of how innovation resulted in mitigating the destruction of the seabed floor. My second to last point on Planet of the Humans before I get back on track is that the renewable energy is that renewable energy, possibly against existing beliefs, still has to be planned and maintained throughout its lifetime and sufficiently recycled at the end of life. In Planet of the Humans, destruction of 500-year-old Joshua trees is shown. Degradation of the equipment and lack of recycling has nothing to do with the efficiency or positive impacts of renewables and everything to do with poor planning and management. If you are in the renewable energy sector and you are cutting down trees to burn or install solar, you've missed the point which suggests that such installations shown in Planet of the Humans are organised solely for profit and greenwashing. The bottom line rather than the triple bottom line, ESG or the three Ps, people, planet and profit. 
where you don't just take economic benefits into account, but the social and environmental ones too. We can have it all with renewables, but like everything in life, it has to be done with the right motives. My final comment, Planet of the Humans, and the energy sector in general, we are still at the beginning of our transition towards a low carbon future. And it is right now we must all be stewards of our carbon footprints because we have to use fossil fuels to move away from fossil fuels and likely a lot more than we think we do. We are currently in limbo until we create circular economies around all our valuable commodities. For example, until we have a solar powered, solar cell manufacturing and recycling plant with solar powered vehicles extracting the mint materials and transporting the materials, we are going to need fossil fuels. The true matter is that renewables are still heavily reliant on fossil fuels and therefore so are we. But this is not a doom and gloom scenario for reasons I will come back to. The number two largest contributing sector to the release of greenhouse gases and toxic chemicals into our ecosystems are the food and beverage industries. The embodied carbon of food and beverage production is arguably the most destructive industry to our natural world. Not just because of the high greenhouse gas emissions from all stages of production, but the simultaneous, simultaneous destruction of animals, trees, plants, soil, and peatlands that store and absorb carbon dioxide. We really are going to town here when it comes to how our food and beverage choices, yes, that may satisfy us in the short term, but are completely, incomprehensibly doing us a disservice in the long term. How and what we feed ourselves will determine the likelihood of our future survival. It's not just the loss of plant and animal species that we rely upon to photosynthesize and build soil to absorb carbon dioxide. It's the repercussions to our health from the overconsumption of meat, dairy, egg and processed products. Food products that are supposed to provide nourishment that instead contain a cocktail of pharmaceuticals, toxic chemicals, carcinogens, and animal fats. Animal fats that stick to the lining of our arteries, collecting around our internal organs that cause heart disease, cancer, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and other chronic lifestyle-related diseases. Forget the COVID-19 pandemic for just a second. We were already in an obesity and poverty crisis. We have enough resources to feed everyone in the world eight times over. But instead, we feed precious grains to animals that those of us who follow a Western diet want to eat. And this is one of the reasons why the solutions to reversing global warming are the same as the solutions to reversing inequality. We should be feeding precious grains to people, not factory farmed animals. En masse across the globe, we have removed animals from the land and disrupted vital nutrient cycles that animal manure and roaming about the wilderness contributes to the cycle of life.
We are degrading the nutritional content of our fruits and veggies, turning topsoil into dust. Deforestation to satisfy the Western lifestyle's demand for meat, animal feed, palm oil, and unsustainable wood products to build houses, furniture, paper, and loot rolls is, I think, the most tragic loss of all. Again, this all sounds very bleak, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. The solution is more simple and closer than you could imagine. The high greenhouse gas emissions of our food and beverage industry not only comes from clearing land and production, but food waste. One third of all the food produced on the planet is wasted. In low income countries, food is wasted due to poor storage during transportation and display at markets. Produce is simply accidentally lost when it falls and is trodden on on the ground. In high income countries, however, food is wasted before and after market. Food is wasted before if it does not look pretty, if a carrot has a kink or an onion is too small, it does not make the cut and is left in the fields to rot because we will not buy it. Food is wasted after market, either because it has not been purchased, because it has passed its sell by date, or because it gets thrown in the bin. Throwing food in the bin is one of the most damaging things you can do. Rotting food in landfill releases methane, a greenhouse gas with a global warming potential that is 84 times worse than CO2. If you currently throw food waste in the bin, call or email your council and ask for a food waste bin. Food is too precious to go in the bin. Our ecosystems ravaged for food only for it to be thrown away where it creates more damage when more people are starving and having to use food banks, for me, is the greatest crime against humanity. Food is a rife topic, so I do not want to spend too much time here when Mark Buckley and Sir William Hannan, guests in our previous podcasts, how food choices today will save tomorrow and fresh local seasonal food and the well-being of people and planet explain the full story. Moving swiftly on, in third place in our leaderboard in the game, who can be the most harmful to humanity? We have fashion. Fast fashion, makeup, perfumes and body sprays. The media makes us want it, makes us need it. Our life isn't complete without the latest influencer's own brand, product or design. The suspense waiting for it to come out. The nerves if we can get on the first order. The excitement on arrival. The joyous feeling as though we finally fit in. I watched the documentaries The True Cost and Stink. That took me right back to my teenage years. I used to love shopping and online shopping. The documentaries brought back the feelings I used to get when I used to think, if I just had this top, or if I could just squeeze into those jeans, I would feel better. My life would finally fit into place. But I've quickly learned these feelings are manufactured. Media manipulates us into thinking, we need these new dresses and the latest makeup range. 
our vast consumption of these subprime products is secretly violating, much like the food and beverage industry, our values. I am 100% certain none of us want to pay for and support slave labour, child labour, poor working conditions, or disposal of toxic chemicals that destroys our environment. But sadly, unknowingly, when we buy clothes online from all the well-known retailers, supporting human rights violation and environmental destruction is exactly what we are doing. But fear not, again, we have the solutions. This is the motivational juice to energize the eco-warrior inside of us all. Throwing clothes in the bin is another massive contributor to the fashion industry's ranking. Even if the scruffiest old bra, pair of old socks, 50-year-old t-shirt, if it's clean, and it must be clean, a charity shop will be able to take it for you under what charity shops call rags. Charity shops can recycle your unwanted rags and they also get money for them. It's magic. It's win for you, win for the planet, win for the charity shop, and win for those who are helped by the charity. Talk about not being part of the pollution. Dust off your shoulders and give yourself a massive pat on the back. Right, last and least in this case of our four industries I'm going to talk about before we answer the question, why have global emissions not gone down more? In fourth ranking position of sectors with an enormous contribution to human-induced climate change, we have transport, our travel. You and me driving in our cars, travelling by train, bus, coach, plane and ship to get to work, see friends and go on holiday. We are a globally connected social creature that loves to travel. And travel we did up until lockdown. Confined to our homes, our right and ability to travel to work, school, on holiday and in general, taken away. So this may have already answered the question for you. The reason why global emissions have not dropped more is that lockdown in our modern hyper-connected world has only really stopped us from travelling, spending money in shops, bars and restaurants. It has not caused the majority of us to switch to renewable energy supplier, change our eating or shopping habits. It has done the opposite. We are buying more food and buying more things online, increasing our contributions to the three most significant contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. To mention the first of the three things that I found out that I am compelled to share in this podcast. On Monday, June the 1st, 2020, I heard the President of Brazil, President Bolsonaro, in April 2020, opened up another vast reserve of Amazonia for development. Unlicensed loggers and gold miners flooded in. In April 2020, deforestation in the Amazon was up 61% compared to April 2019. 
The four major drivers for deforestation in the Amazon being beef, soy for animal feed, palm oil for processed foods, and the wood for paper products such as loo roll. Our increased demand for these products during lockdown is accelerating our loss of the Amazon rainforest. The second horrendous thing I learnt on Monday, June the 1st, was South Africa discussing reclassifying 32 of its wild animals, such as elephants, giraffes, lions, rhinos, as farm animals, likely to stimulate an industry in rare meats to satisfy international demand, especially from China. As a former meat eater who before the horse meat scandal in 2012 could not fathom not eating bacon or milk chocolate, I understand our global obsession with meat. The stuff tastes good. There is a part of me that sometimes misses my omnivore diet. I even had a song I would sing when I was cooking bacon or sausages. I now have, just FYI, a song for bread and vegetables. Eating whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, was a huge part of my identity. I love food and it used to make me feel really good when people would say, where do you put it all? You must have hollow legs when I would polish off a large Big Mac and chips. But why is this? To quote one of my favourite plant-based doctors, Dr Milton Mills, you ain't seen the face of an addict until you have tried to pry a piece of fried chicken out of a hungry person's hand. I'll just say that again. You ain't seen the face of an addict until you have tried to pry a piece of fried chicken out of a hungry person's hand. And that is something I could definitely relate to. I used to love fried chicken. Learning animal products, dairy especially, are addictive. I simultaneously felt rage and weakness, but also hope and strength. I was angry I allowed the media to manipulate me into thinking my diet was healthy. And I felt weak because I did not question what I just accepted to be true. I was not being a good scientist. But knowing this accelerated my journey towards being whole food plant-based. I had the knowledge and knowledge is power and I knew I could change my habits and this for the bacon loving fried chicken addict crazed person I used to be gave me hope that if I could do it so could anyone. I often hear the argument I can't afford to eat healthy or I don't know what else to eat meat is just easy or I don't have time to search for recipes and cook all the time. These are all things I used to wrestle with when I would justify to myself why I needed a pork pie. However, the more research I did and the more veg I bought, I realised healthy food isn't expensive. Processed food is just so cheap. This is because of the scale of poor quality food production, making it cheaper due to the economies of scale. Government subsidies are also a major factor. 
Water, for example, used by the oil and gas industry and big agribiz is so heavily subsidised, we have no way of knowing what products would actually cost if companies paid the same price you and I did for water. The oil and gas sector makes pesticides and fertilisers for monocrops for animal feed and processed food ingredients. Big Pharma always has a guaranteed market in animal factory farming where the majority of pharmaceuticals go. And yes, that is in America. But who, because of Brexit, is the UK snuggling up to? My food bills have never been cheaper, even when I shop at Waitrose for seasonal local veg. Today, searching for your fave fruit and veg recipes has never been easier on the web. And thanks to our previous fast-paced life, there are an umpteen quick and more importantly nutritious whole food plant-based recipes on the web for those of us who are always pushed for time. To be blunt, the next time you pick up food that contains animal products, soy or palm oil, or loo roll that does not say from a sustainable source, ask the question, has the growing and production of this animal or its feed or the soy or palm oil or wood-based product contributed to deforestation? If you can't answer a definite no, there is a very strong probability you will not just be satisfying a short-term craving for satisfaction. You are also satisfying the bottom line of a supply chain that does not have your best interests at heart. At the peak of lockdown, April 7th, 2020, the global emissions reduction compared to April 7th, 2019, saw a 17% reduction. 17% sounds like a lot. And indeed, it is better than nothing given our previous trajectory. But unfortunately, this reduction is temporary. The 17% reduction is not going to do anything to slow down climate change. What matters now is every single one of our daily choices in energy conservation, food choices and online shopping habits. The big industries in the world, oil and gas, agriculture, pharmaceutical and sugar, to name a few, have a big part to play in government policy. And government policy has a big part to play in how we live our daily lives. It all sounds pretty hopeless. How can one person, one inspired, good intentioned person who wants to make a positive difference take on the largest industries in the world and make the government listen? Well, the answer is so simple and so beautiful. Change your demand. Buy products that are in line with your values. People, us, we, you and me, together. Our demand for products, food, fashion, energy, anything you can think of, 
to buy. Our demand, our decisions, our choices to buy what we want does not just have a big part to play in what industries do. We are the part to play. We are the game these industries want to win. They want our time, they want our money, and they want our attention. Whatever we want, industry will give it to us because industries want customers and industries want to survive. All we have to do is vote with our feet and our money and buy products that are in line with our values and do not cost the earth. If lockdown has taught me anything, it is the power of people. The consequences of us not spending money and taking away our cash flow can shut down any industry, no matter how big they are, and make them seriously rethink how they operate. When we realise how much impact we can all have when we work together, I believe there is no stopping us. There was a fourth nugget of info I learnt this week. The good news is it almost cancelled out the heart-wrenching despair I felt when I read 61% increased deforestation in the Amazon. Iconic wild African animals being eaten to extinction. 17% emissions reduction will have no impact on slowing down human-induced warming. And it confirmed my belief, people are the solution. The good news is, for this minority belief that the people of the world actually are the ones that hold all the power. For this minority belief to become a majority belief, so we can start to design a sustainable future we want. A study shows that for an idea to spread from one person to many, once 10 to 11% of a population commits to the idea, it is inevitable the idea will eventually become the prevailing opinion of the entire population. The key is remaining committed to the idea. Check out ethicalconsumer.org and our podcast with them. Empower your purchasing with Ethical Consumers Online Toolkit for more information on how you can vote with your money and your feet to buy products that are in line with your values and do not cost the earth. There are 67,886,004 people in the UK right now. If every young person between the age of 15 and 24, which is just over 11% of the population in the UK, committed to reducing their consumption of products that contribute to deforestation. Young people in schools across the UK could change the course of our future. Save the rainforests, the wild animals in Africa, and get the ball rolling 
on reversing human-induced global warming. I wish you all the happiest World Environment Day. If you've made it this far, subscribe to the Solutions for Climate Revolution podcast. And if you like what you heard and you want to be part of the 10% who could change it all, who will change it all, please share this with your friends and family. Stay up to date with our work at the Namine Solar Light Company by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn at Namine Solar. Peace and love to you all and happy Friday.